For many riders, traveling by motorcycle with another rider can really add to an experience. Someone that can maybe see things through similar eyes, be amazed and revel in what you do, and have your back as well. Someone to pick up your bike or help you pick up your bike and you to help them. Someone to work things through with. But it's a balance. And finding the right balance between independence and collaboration is a give and take. You sacrifice some for them and they for you. And hopefully you meet somewhere in the middle. But for some riders, that balance is difficult to meet. Difficult to give up what to them fundamentally defines their trip. And those riders tend to prefer to ride solo. After almost 20 years of traveling, Helen Lloyd's expectations and views on her travel style have certainly evolved. Helen has ridden her bicycle from the UK to Cape Town, South Africa. She rode a horse through Kyrgyzstan, pack rafted in Nicaragua, cycled North and Central America. She's ridden a bicycle in Siberia in the winter. Much of it was done solo, all these trips. When Helen decided to go back to Africa, she decided to ride her motorcycle and share the trip with her partner. And what she learned on that trip solidified her thoughts on solo travel. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manikin. Ted Simon. Austin Venn. Simon Payne. Bill Burgoon. Patrick Pettis. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Bowman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Graham Jarvis. Quentin Smith. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. It's wind pressure that powers the MotoBreeze chain oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets. MotoBreeze.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear, greenchiliadv.com. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters, cyclepump.com. Okay, my name's Helen Lloyd from the UK. And um, professionally, I'm an engineer, um, but for the last 15, 20 years, I've actually spent a lot of my time traveling. Helen, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Professionally, you're an engineer. So do you use that at all now? Like you said, 15 or 20 years you've been traveling now. Yes, I mean, obviously I have to pay for my travels. So I uh, go back periodically and uh, work as an engineer, save up money and then uh, then travel again. You've done so many different kinds of adventures. I mean, you've ridden bicycles and you've, you've hiked and, and you've done all kinds of things so, as, as far as adventure goes. But but going right back to when when it first began, can, can you remember what spurred this this whole thing of your your desire to go out and explore? Yeah, I guess it was, um, okay. So as a young kid, I, like family holidays, we occasionally went to say France camping for two weeks where what it is it, in one of those tents that takes kind of, you know, like 
three hours and almost <laughs> a world war between the parents to actually put it up. And then you're never going to leave the campsite for the rest of the holiday because it's too stressful to like take it down and move on. Right. So that was my experience of holidays and um, for a long period. And then it wasn't until I was 16 and the school I went to offered a travel scholarship um, to do something that involved travel. And all you had to do was propose your idea. And if they liked it the best, then they gave you some money to go and do it. Um, and at the time, the, the only, well, basically the only requirement afterwards was that you came back and gave a talk about your trip to, you know, the school assembly. Mm-hmm. Um, so every year I'd sort of heard these, um, stories of the, 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 pe- the people that had gone before and they always sounded amazing and exotic and, uh, adventurous. And, uh, I thought, sort of thought, oh, you know, that's, that's, that sounds amazing. I'd love to do something like that. But I was a really shy, introverted kid and had no idea how I would go about this or with the, the thought of going abroad and doing something completely different, like, uh, kind of was, well, very daunting and I didn't even know how to approach it. Yeah. Um, but I did uh, eventually mention it to my parents and I mean, this was in the days before the internet, dad went off to the library and found some brochures of group trips like, uh, that, that, you know, like, uh, organ- organizations take, uh, groups of kids or, you know, um, young people on expeditions, um, in various places around the world. And, uh, that seemed like a good, um, a, a good thing that I could do because it took away a lot of the, the planning and logistics of which I had no idea about. Um, so I applied to go on one of these trips and I didn't actually win the, the scholarship at school, um, the, the travel grants at school. But um, my parents said, well, if you raise the money you were going to raise anyway, um, we'll help cover the rest. And that was when I went to India for a month, um, did some trekking up in the, the Himalayas and spent a little bit of time volunteering in a school. And that was a complete eye opener. I mean, I'd never been on a plane up until that point and after that there was i think that's pretty much the point at which travel was going to be in my life did did you come back a completely different person your friends sort of look at you sideways thinking what happened to you <laughs> um i was no i they probably didn't notice i guess but for sure i was i think probably for a, you know a few years i kind of felt that this shy introverted person that people saw me as wasn't entirely who I was. Um, but it's very hard to break out of a, out of a character that people see you as, um, and have always known you as. And I think when I went on this trip, I was there, then with a group of people who had no idea who I was and I could kind of be who I wanted to be. Mm. Um, and I think certainly I gained in confidence and for sure that kind of, did follow through into, you know, when I, when I came back from the trip, but I was still very aware of when I was around people that knew me, I kind of sort of reverted in, uh, you know, retreated into myself, into my old self, um, I think. So I think that took a long time. Um, but it was, I mean, it was only in a couple of years at school and then I, I, I moved away and uh, got friends in a completely different, um, uh, and scenario through work and uh, various clubs I joined. And so then I was this sort of, sort of a, the, the me I wanted to be. What do you describe yourself as now? Um, well, for sure, I'm still an introvert um, and I can be shy. I mean, like the introverted side of me is, uh, you know, 
I don't like walking into a pub by myself and I'm not keen on going and introducing myself to strangers. But if someone comes and talks to me, I'll happily converse. Um, and certainly when I, once I know people, then, then I don't, like, I, I doubt many of my friends would think that I would, would call me shy or introverted because once I know people, I sort of come out of my skin a little, I think. But I think that's quite common with introverts in general. It seems to me that that is polar opposite to what you would need to be a traveler because a, a traveler, you know, I think most of us can, can picture somebody who's a, a real traveler getting out there doing the types of things that you do is this almost, you, you know, you'd have to be somewhat pushy and you'd have to, you know, be, be not hesitant at all to walk up and open the door and, and say hello, those sorts of things. And you're describing something completely different. Uh, yeah, no, that is true. And um, I think maybe it's one of the things I do like about travel. Like I do find that hard, but if I wasn't traveling, then I don't know that I would force myself into those situations where I have to do that. Um, like in the UK, surrounded by your comforts and what you know, it's very easy to just sort of keep doing what you've always done. Whereas, you know, when you're in a foreign city and you haven't spoken to anyone for, you know, days or weeks at a time, you know, in, in any real meaningful way, then if you want to have a conversation, you have to, you have to walk up to people and start them. And, uh, it kind of forces me to do that. When, when you were a kid and you're saying you're, you're shy and introverted, like, like what type of person were you? Were you, were you the type that would step up to a challenge? Were you looking to prove something that maybe that you weren't so shy and inverted or, or something like that as you were, as you were small? No, no, I was, I, no, I, no, I don't think so. I mean, like at, at school, like academically and sports wise, I was uh, pretty good. So from that point of view, it wasn't really an issue, but, uh, yeah, the only times to sort of step out of this being a shy person, I think, uh, that was the only time it happened it was forced upon me. Um, if I was told I was giving the, uh, uh, that, you know, the, I don't know if we had, we had a public speaking uh, competition and I was told that I had to do it and I wasn't allowed to not do it. Um, and I think that was my teachers trying to bring out this, you know, the, the bring out the real me, maybe, I don't know, but, uh, any, anything like that, I, I used to hate and I would do anything I could to try and get out of it for sure. <laughs> now, now that's ironic because don't you have on your website that you're up for hire for doing presentations? Yes. And I, yeah, I mean, I don't do them very often, uh, but if someone asks that I, and, and I'm available, then I always do. That's amazing. Um, yeah. It was probably like I, I, my, my two probably biggest fears in life, um, were um, like a fear of spiders and a fear of public speaking. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I've, well, I've had to sort of so overcome you, them to some extent. So you may have overcome the fear of public speaking. What about the spider thing? Uh, I'm better. Better. <laughs> still, still, still not great. You know, Helen, the reason I'm asking about this is because there are so many people who will listen to someone like you that's so adventurous and goes off and does all these things alone, uh, on your own and think, well, that's just because that she has the personality for that. I don't have the personality. I, I you know, I, I'm shy and introverted or, you know, I, I don't have what it takes to be a traveler. And really what you're describing is, is that it's really going out there and doing it. That one thing, that one trip that you did back when you were a kid, going out there, putting yourself out, it must have been terribly scary for you to begin with. You said you hadn't been on a plane. You must have been terrified at the start. But in the end, you come out changed. 
Yeah, I mean, to, to be honest, no, I don't remember being scared at all. I think, uh, I think, but I think as kids, we're very adaptable and we don't necessarily question things as much mm-hmm. in that respect. And so, you know, as part of the the trip, we had a like a, a, a pre-trip planning weekend. So that was my first, you know, I went up to the Lake District um, and that's where I met everybody. And so it was kind of small steps, but also once you know you're going on this trip, there's kind of, it, it, it's all happening. It's like the, 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 the set in motion and you're just kind of on this like a treadmill and you just go with the flow and deal with things as they arise. Um, no, for sure. Like getting up and standing on a stage and talking is far more terrifying for me, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, uh, but I think it's, uh, and I guess it's the same approach with that as, as things with travel and, you know, being shy or whatever you have, you have to sometimes do things that, you know, that, that scare you or that, that you have this inbuilt, inbuilt fear, you know, and it, it's not like, you know, there's some fear is a, there's a real, real reason for it. Like there's a, you know, a risk or a threat to yourself, sure. but fear of public speaking or fear of walking into a bar and striking up a conversation. It's kind of, it's just, uh, emotions and feelings and, and you have to just say, well, you just got to overcome it and, and give it a go. Because when you do, when you do give it a go, you are overcoming it just by giving it a go. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and then you, it always has, a, almost always has a positive experience in the end. So even though it may be incredibly daunting or scary to start off with, um, the results, you know, having a great conversation, meeting new people or, um, like with the talks that I do, um, I can give or take the talks, but what I really enjoy is the interactions afterwards when people come and talk, cause then they come up to me and talk to me. Um, so I don't have to initiate the conversations. That's, that's fantastic. And then I get to hear other people's stories. So, so for me, those, that, those fears and risks are worth, worth taking for the, for the, for the rewards. Because you've learned through experience that when you push yourself past that scary part, that there's always a positive or almost always a positive. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Talk a bit about your, your travels that you've done, the, the type of the, the mode of travel and, and the traveling you've done. Um, well, I guess it's, uh, developed over the years, um, from, from that first group expedition that I did. Um, I then went on to do, to go backpacking, um, sort of in my, uh, I took a gap year after school in South America. Um, and yeah, so I did a few backpacking trips and then it was on one, one of those trips. I met some people that were cycle touring and that made me realize that perhaps cycle touring would be ideal for the, the things that I want to get out of my travels. Um, and so, yes, then I started the cycle touring and, um, from there I've kind of progressed onto the motorbike. Um, and for sure I've done a a few other trips, uh, river travel, um, hiking, horse riding, um, and they all have different benefits or, or, you know, uh, different aspects of travel that kind of appeal and challenges, of course. So that's really been the evolution. And, and and now my trips are all, almost always uh, sort of independent and usually solo. And where have you been? What, what areas do you go to? Um, well, yeah, so my first backpacking trips were in South America back in like the early 2000s, I guess. And then 
the site, the, basically the first big cycle trip I did was when I cycled down to Cape Town. So I spent nearly two years in Africa. Um, and since then I've done a motorbike trip through Africa as well. And more recent times I've spent, um, trips, well, crisscrossing Europe, really. Um, there's so much to see, uh, relatively close to home. Yeah. And, and now I'm, uh, now I'm on the road again and I'm just crossed through Turkey into the Caucasus and well, my general aim or direction is heading across the country, well, across the continent of Asia, sort of through India, Southeast Asia, and make my way to Australia. But that, that's over the coming coming years, probably. And this is by motorcycle? Uh, yeah, currently currently on the motorbike, yeah. Mm-hmm. You, I know at one point, uh, and I, you know, it's funny because I often make, I make jokes about, you know, cyclists and thinking I, I, they don't get it. And I think I just said this last week. I was talking about cyclists and they, they don't get it because all you have to do is put a motor on it. And, you know, you've got a, a completely different experience. But the, I'm kidding because, you know, I love riding bicycles. And I know that feeling of pushing the pedals and the, that sensation that you get. There's something really great about it. But you did make a, a comment one time. You said you upgraded from your from your bicycle to your motorcycle. What does that mean? Well, it feels like an upgrade because <laughs> uh, <laughs> financially and complexity um, and, well, not needing to use quite so much energy. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, whether I, I, maybe upgrade isn't the right word. <laughs> it's just a different mode of travel. But, exactly. but huge advantages, of course, you don't have, I mean, to get somewhere, it's, it's much easier to get somewhere. But what are the downsides of switching from cycling to motorcycle? Um, well, the difficulty I've got at the moment is, uh, with border, uh, well, crossing borders and with, you know, some countries need carnets. Um, the bicycle is really easy to stick on a bus or a train or a plane. And so if you need to get to a completely different region, you can, you can actually do that very easily and cost effectively. Whereas with the motorbike or, or any motorized vehicle, it becomes more complicated usually. Mm. I'm trying to, well, I'm had been hoping to get into the, and explore the Middle East this winter. Um, but getting into the region overland with the motorbike is looking rather complicated and maybe not possible. Whereas I can just, uh, go back to the UK, load my bicycle into a box and take a short plane, uh, you know, a cheap, uh, budget plane, to the Middle East, to Jordan, and then I'm there and can cycle freely for the entire winter. I think it was on on you, the first trip that you did with a motorcycle when you when you supposedly upgraded from the bicycle to the motorcycle. I think you had a starter problem, the the uh, overrunning clutch on the starter, and it was then that you said that it struck you how much more complicated and how much more trouble the motorcycle was. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I guess. I mean, basically, there's there's more to go wrong on a motorbike. Um, there's more mechanical parts, um, but also because it's a heavy, well, heavier, heavier and bigger piece of machinery. It's uh, it's basically with a bicycle. If it goes wrong and you're in the middle of nowhere, you can just push it or drag it or carry it back mm. to civilization and load it onto a bus or a truck or anything and uh, get it fixed and getting it fixed is usually relatively simple. Whereas the motorbike, it's much, if it breaks down in the middle of nowhere, you're, you're kind of stranded unless you're able to fix it with the tools you've got. 
Yeah. And, and having said that now, when you're talking about you just a minute ago, you were saying about going to the Middle East and it looks like it's going to be difficult to get there overland with your motorcycle. Are, are you up for just swapping it out for your bicycle at this point? Or do you sort of hesitate, you know, giving up <laughs> the all the great things of a motorcycle? To, to be honest, I mean, there's basically, I think there's parts of the world or countries that are much really well suited to cycle travel and cycling is probably the best way to see those countries but then there's other places and regions which i think the motorbike is much better suited and i think like for example uh turkey and i'm in georgia at the moment i i'm glad i'm not cycling to be honest here <laughs> here especially you either got very busy main roads or amazing mountain roads and trails for the motorbike, you know, twisty, windy, narrow roads through beautiful scenery, but incredibly hilly. And with the bicycle, it would just be hard work. And I think the Middle East is probably better suited for the motorbike, but I'd rather go with the bicycle than not go at all. The the speed obviously makes a difference in how much time you're spending in an area. And some people will say the slower you travel, the more you'll see in that area. But that, that I've just said that, that reminds me of a guy named Verlin Kruger, who was a long distance canoeist. And and he liked to paddle fast through areas. And a lot of times people would make uh, comments about, you know, you're, you're missing everything because you're not spending as much time. And he would say, well, I may be missing stuff in that place, but I'm seeing more overall because of the distance I'm covering. And I'm making this comparison between cycling and motorcycling. Did did you find a big difference between your experience when you're when you're traveling by cycling versus motorcycling, or is it like Verlin Kruger found, where you're just getting to see more on the bike because you're traveling faster and have more mobility? Um, I mean, I I understand what he's saying. Uh, the problem with the motorbike sometimes is you yes you can travel and and see, you know, hundreds of kilometers of scenery in a day. The, the problem is if you're doing that every day, it's you, you don't get the time to process everything you've seen. Um, and then it's just all kind of passing you by. And it, you, you don't, I don't, I, th- I don't, for me anyway, I don't form the, the stronger memories of the places because there's just too much to, too much for my brain to process. Whereas the cycling is much slower and, and, and also, and also because physically it's more demanding, you need more rest days. Um, and that gives me the time to kind of uh, sort of fixes in my head everything that I've seen and sort of get a better understanding of the of the places for sure. But with the motorbike, um, what I do like about it is that, you know, also with the cycling, I've now done, I know I can cycle those long, boring stretches and mentally it's hard, but I can do it. But I, and I don't feel like I need to prove that to myself anymore. Where, so with the motorbike, I can pass through those less, less interesting areas and then spend more time in the places I really want to be and explore them more in depth. Mm. Um, so that's one definite benefit with the, with the motorbike. When you, you were talking about reflecting on the trip there, when you're reflecting on the trip, what, what do you remember most about it? Is it places, people, experiences, things that went wrong? Um, I I think generally as humans, we're very good at forgetting pain and suffering. So maybe not the things that went wrong. (laughs) You Um, you may forget the pain and that's probably good for a cyclist. You'll forget the pain of those long hills because they are a pain. (laughs) You'll forget that and and that's probably great. But um, you won't forget the, you know, the, the breakdown you've had. No, no, um, no, I, the most memorable thing, to be honest, I, 
it can be landscapes, it can be people generally though. Um, certainly with the cycling, it's generally the, the most memorable things are the times when I'm not actually cycling. And I, to some extent that's true with the motorbike. I mean, I love trail riding. Um, so when it's technically a bit challenging, um, that I really, really love, but just riding along a highway to get from A to B, that, that doesn't interest me so much. And, and so in that respect, the, the experiences that are most memorable are when I stop and see something or do something or meet, meet, meet people. Yeah. Mm. Is the bike a mode of transportation to you or you've you sort of fallen in love with the, the motorcycle and the ride and the feel and all that? Uh, it, it, it's a bit of both. I mean, I got my motorbike license originally uh, to be as a mode of transport for traveling and seeing the world, but I just love riding it for sure. Mm-hmm. And you're riding the same bike now? Have you had the same one for a while? Uh, no, the bike that I did my, the motorbike I did my original, uh, big trip through Africa on, I then took, well, it's been across Europe a couple of times and I took it to Iceland, but, uh, when it, it sort of didn't really survive Iceland entirely. Uh, well, it done nearly 95,000 kilometers, I think by that stage. Um, and it was just needing too many parts replaced and it was mm, much yeah. more cost effective to buy a new bike. Um, so this one is effectively the same. It's a Yamaha Cero, but a newer version. And I bought it specifically for this trip. So I've only had it three months pretty much. Oh, I see. So, and this is the months. 250, I guess. Yeah, this is the 250. Yeah. Right. Right. Cause the old, the old one was 225. Yep. Yeah. So that was like had a kickstart and a carb and this one's well, push the button and it's fuel injected. So your old one didn't have an electric start as well. Uh, it did, but for most of the time it wasn't really functioning. So I kickstarted <laughs> most of the time, but it's a, uh, you always know the kickstart's going to work. Right. Yeah. It's a good backup to have. Hey, m- most of your trips are done solo. That, that's how you, I guess, started out. You did your first trip. You said that you did it solo. Is, is that by choice? Uh, now, definitely, yes. Originally, I guess, when I first started kind of backpacking, it was more because I didn't really know anyone else that wanted to do what I was doing. Um, and in between those two points, I have traveled with other people. But generally now, I would always do a trip by myself. I don't mind traveling with people for you know periods of time. Um, but not a long overland journey with someone for sure. Why is that? Um, I guess I'm too independent and know what I want in life generally um, and aren't prepared to compromise. Um, Like we were talking just before um, we started the interview, Um, life's too short. Got, got to do the things we want to do while we can. You have at times traveled with other people. Matter of fact, I, I want to talk to you about your trip to Africa and that was with another person. Yeah, with the motorbike. Yeah. Nothing is worse than cold feet while you ride your motorcycle. I don't need to tell you that, but you don't need to suffer with cold feet because us riders have a sock that was designed specifically for riding motorcycles. 
Pearly's Possum Socks. Pearly's are the official sock of Adventure Rider Radio because I am so taken with these socks. I've been doing outdoor things since I was a kid. I've spent many years guiding wilderness trips. So I've tried my share of different kinds of socks, different blends and knits and things like that. But never before have I been so impressed with a pair of socks like I have been since the first time I wore my Pearly's Possum Socks. These are thick, warm socks knitted for riding boots and shoes, but the real magic begins in the makeup. The possum fur and merino wool blend that wicks away moisture from the skin. It's got natural lanolins in the fiber that resist bacteria growth, which means that you can wear them inside your boots, you know, on a long, hot day or a weekend or, well, however many days you want, and they just seem to never stink. The stink is bacteria growth, and Pearly's deals with that by preventing it from growing by using these natural fibers the possum fur and merino wool that that already have the lanolin in there. It stops that naturally. There's nothing added to it. These these natural fibers are very random and coiled in a microscopic view. So they're they're all little like kinky little fibers. And what they do is they they trap air in there, which makes them soft. But more importantly, that's where the heat retention comes from. And when they get wet, the the thread itself soaks up the moisture, but it still keeps that air trapped in there, which is why your feet will still be warm. Whereas with if you wear you know cotton socks, your feet will be absolutely frozen. It's all about that trapped air in those little kinks and coils. It's really ingenious. Of course, to a sheep or a possum, it's no big deal. It's actually why sheep can stand out in the pouring rain and cold weather and stay warm. Wool. But this blend of merino wool and possum fur takes it to the next level. You know, blending two great things that when they're blended together, they make something even greater than the parts, right? I wear them when I'm out riding. I wear them for outdoor activities, working outside. I mean, I wear them for everything. And after a day of riding hard, even in the hot weather, or working all day or on my hiking boots all day, my feet still feel fresh. This sounds weird. Never thought I'd say it about my feet, but they feel fresh. It's not like when I wear cotton socks. When I wear cotton socks, I'm dying to get my boots off. I mean, I've got a like, I'm just dying to get those boots off when I get in. Not when I wear my pearlies. I just don't have that. I'm telling you, these things are incredible. Now, I don't have to say this stuff. I can just advertise pearly socks without me going on and gushing about them. But I tell you because it's the truth. And I know that if you try them, you're going to feel the same way. I've already heard from many listeners that have tried them and absolutely love them like I do. Pearly's Possum Socks. They make incredible socks and sweaters. They make sweaters as well, for that matter. The website, pearlyspossumsocks.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here in Adventure Rider Radio. Pearly'sPossumSocks.com. Changing your foot pegs isn't difficult. It probably is in the beginner range of working on your motorcycle things, but it can be ride-changing if you choose the right foot pegs. IMS Products makes a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs, ranging from some large ADV-1 and ADV-2 sizes on to the core series. Different sizes and shapes for different riding styles. But shape and size isn't all there is to be considered when choosing a foot peg, which is why IMS Products stands out. It's in the design and building of those foot pegs. IMS Products has designed their foot pegs for the purpose, our purpose, of gaining more control of a large adventure bike or an adventure bike loaded with gear. The extra size increases your leverage. The staggered tooth design grips your boot without tearing it apart. They also have a watershed design, which means that all the surfaces on the underside of the foot peg have been shaped to resist things from sticking into the bottom of the foot peg. So mud, debris, just has no choice but to fall away and keep your feet connected to the pegs. It's really important. 
And IMS designs these pegs so that your toes can still access your shifter and your brake lever without upsetting the geometry that came from the factory. Super important. Now, if that weren't enough, IMS products also uses 17-4 cast certified stainless steel, which means they're super tough, but not brittle. That's a key point for a foot peg. They're made in the USA. They're warrantied for life. IMS Products has been owned and operated by riders just like you since 1976. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. You have at times traveled with other people. Matter of fact, I, I want to talk to you about your trip to Africa, and that was with another person. Yeah, with the motorbike. Yep. Was was that the first time? Um. Yes and no. Like it was the the only trip that the only long trip I've done with someone from start to finish. But uh, like, so for example, the first Africa trip I did um, with the bicycle, I actually after um, about three months when I was in the Western Sahara, actually met another cyclist and we ended up cycling together for about five months on and off. Um, so, and, and then after that trip, we, with this cyclist I'd met, we then did a trip down through America, North America and Central America together over about uh, nearly eight months. Um, so I've done that with a friend and then, I've done sh- a couple of shorter trips, sort of, you know, three weeks at a time with with someone. Um, but predominantly, yes, I travel by myself. Um, the, the motorbike trip through Africa, though, that you're referring to uh, was the only trip that I've done set off with, like you know, part of someone that I was in a relationship with at the time. You said that um, one of the things, one of the reasons you travel, you find it better traveling by yourself is because you know what you want. So what does that mean though? Does that mean like, like, because when you travel with somebody else, you sort of have to like, I guess, compromise between the two of you? Yeah. It's, you know, I mean, that's just true. If you're in just in a relationship, even, you know, within a regular conventional kind of life, um, yeah, you know, you have to compromise and I guess I'm okay with that up to a point. Um, but it doesn't always like I I, I think I, I think the issue that we ultimately really that we had was is less less to do with the compromises and me not being able to have times to myself and freedom to do my own thing on occasion. Um, I probably partly the introvert in me. Um, I don't entirely know where it stems from, but I really need time to myself, um, solitude, where you can call it what you want. But for me, that's uh, really important. And if I can't have that, then that, that, then, it, you know, it's not going to work for me really. Some people say that when they travel, that one of the things they love to do is share it with someone. And that that's the reason, you know, for going with another person, you've got someone there who you've you sort of, um, witnessed things together and was a witness to your life, I guess, and you to their life. But also when you, when you get through things that are difficult, you know, you know, it creates a bond many times um, and, and those sorts of things. Do you find you come back from a trip and then uh, maybe are, are lacking someone to, uh, or, or some way to express what you've experienced because you're traveling solo? Um, 
No, I mean, when, when I do, do travel with people, for sure, I, you know, I love the kind of the camaraderie aspect of it, um, you mm-hmm. know, the banter and, 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 and that sort of thing. But in terms of uh, share, having a shared experience, I mean, uh, no, not so much. I mean, I can look on a beautiful sunset or, you know, amazing view. And actually, in some ways, I find it more special if it's just me. <laughs> um, I feel very privileged to have that experience. Um, and when I've had, you know, looked upon similar kind of scenes with someone else, whether it's a friend or a stranger, I think I think it's uh, often diluted somewhat because there's there's another presence kind of um having an impact I, I, i'm not very good at explaining it but but no for, for for sure i uh i don't need someone else to have to, to to share the experiences i know exactly what you're talking about i think because i've had the feeling myself there's times when you want to just sit by yourself and take it in whereas with your when you're with another person there's either movement or someone talking to you or, or a conversation. Or saying, that, wow, isn't this amazing? Yeah, <laughs> and you're like, yeah. shut up. <laughs> yeah, which you don't need. It's like, you're just telling yeah, me the yeah. obvious. That's why I'm sitting yeah. here so quiet. No, I, I get that. And and that's difficult. But but do you find that afterwards that you, that you want to tell someone about how amazing? I mean, let, let's put it this way. What, what do you get from travel? What are you after for, in travel? Um, well, I think it's changed over the years. Um, I think... Uh, Initially, it was uh, well. After that um, trip to India, my eyes were kind of suddenly suddenly opened up onto this. You know, I realised there was so little I knew about the world, and I just wanted. I I had this like insatiable curiosity and thirst for knowledge. I guess that I just wanted to see everywhere and learn everything there was to learn um, about. You know, the the amazing place that we places where the people live. and then I guess over time, certainly now as I've gotten older, uh, more and more I'm, uh, uh, I've, I kind of have less interest in the in sort of meeting lots of people and being surrounded by people, and kind of want to search out the parts of the world that are kind of untouched, or I mean, nowhere's untouched these days, but relatively untouched, mm-hmm. um, and where there's very few people, and I can kind of just be by myself. Um, yeah, really, that's what I really like for sure. The places that I've enjoyed the most, uh, you know, in, in, in on recent trips, uh, places like, uh, sort of far Northwest of Namibia, where it's very, um, kind of, it's real, you feel hills very remote and wilderness and very few people living there. Um, Iceland as well as these vast landscapes, um, and, you know, you can spend all day and not see anyone um, and just be surrounded by nature. And, and that's what I really, really love more now, for sure. What can you do with that afterwards? Do you have to do anything with it? Um, I don't know. I mean, is it all about just that moment? I mean, it's almost like, you know, chasing a fix. I, I've used this analogy before about being addicted to drugs. It's like chasing a fix. Is that what it's more like? Um. I don't think it's quite the same because, I mean, the kind of like, for example, I enjoy the trail riding and that does feel like a, more of a fix. Um, there's a, you know, a bit of a sense of adrenaline rush and uh, kind mm-hmm. of I feel really energized by it. Um, the, the spending time in nature and it's is not about chasing anything. It's about slowing down. 
um, and just letting time pass. Um, I, th- I think in certainly in the world I <laughs> world I grew up in, we were kind of from a very young age. It's always been about achieving things and striving for whatever success or or, or something we we should always be working towards something and um I kind of feel less and less need to do that as I'm getting older and just to enjoy the moment is actually the most rewarding thing I can can experience and 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 just sort of exist and be happy um we don't have to be striving for things all the time um and that's definitely sort of been the main change i think in my travels so you'd see things differently now though than when you started out as as far as you you have a a different goal yeah yeah for sure um when I started out, I wanted to almost rush around and see everything and make sure that I didn't miss 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 a thing. Um, whereas now I'm content just to to be. Let's talk about that Africa trip that you you mentioned there, where you went with someone else. This was the first trip that you've you've traveled with someone. Can you set that up? What was that all about? Um, yeah, well, I'd already, I'd already uh, several years previously cycled down through Africa and I'd always known since that trip that I wanted to go back to the continent and see more of it. Uh, I felt kind of almost at home there. Um, and after I'd got back from Siberia and I'd been struggling in the UK, um, feeling a bit kind of life was a bit pointless and I realized I kind of needed to maybe give myself something to look forward to. And uh, for me, that was, you know, to, to, to travel again. Um, and that was when I decided to go to Africa again and with the motorbike by then, by then I'd got my motorcycle license. But during that time I got together with a guy and, um, you know, we, we started a relationship and so it then evolved into, um, us going together. Was he a traveler before this? Yeah, we actually, we actually met, um, we were both on separate journeys in Asia, um, and our paths crossed and that was how we, how we met. And, uh, we, you know, we stayed in touch as, as, as you know, people often do with by Facebook and social media. And then when we were back in the UK, we, we ended up meeting up and yeah, it went from there really. So you planned the trip. What is the trip just overall? What were you looking to do? In, in Af- originally, for the Af- when, when I thought I was going to be bike home by myself, um, it was kind of going to be a fairly open-ended thing, almost more of a way of life than a than a than a isolated trip. And I figured I'd ride the motorbike and explore places that I wanted to see. And when I didn't feel an urge to or a need to move on, I could settle down. And I'd at the time I was really into my writing, and then I could settle down and write. Um, and if I was able to maybe sell, you know, the odd uh, article to a magazine, I'd be able to sort of help fund this relatively low cost lifestyle. Um, when I sort of felt the urge to move on um, and see somewhere else, then I then I could. And so for me, it was wasn't about getting from A to B, say, um, you know, from Cape Town to Cairo. Um, I would just sort of go wherever I fancied, and it would 
take whatever time it took. Um, but it's that's quite a hard kind of journey to be on with someone else unless they have that same vision, which we didn't really have. So we, yeah, so it, it sort of evolved into this journey across Africa, which was also brilliant. I mean, that's how a lot of my journeys have been. But the focus was on the on the on on the traveling more than the you know the, the, the stopping and just living living life. Um, yeah. So did you sit down and work out a, a route with your boyfriend at the time and say, okay, this is where we're going to go? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I had loads of places that I knew I wanted to go, and my partner had never been to Africa, so he wasn't bothered where we went. Um, so basically it was up to me, <laughs> which obviously was great because, uh, from, from that point of view, I didn't have to compromise too much, but at the sort of the back of my mind, there was always this, I'm wanting to take us places that he's going to enjoy as well. It wasn't, I, I could never, uh, a lot of the decisions or I, I made were often almost always with his, whether he would enjoy it as well at the, at the forefront of my decision-making. Because he, he, you know, he was he was a part of this trip as well. But obviously, the advantage was that I could more or less, you know, b- between us, we could we could travel to these all the places that I knew I wanted to go. Because he 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 was up for it, yeah. Right, just open ended though, no schedule set. No schedule set. I mean, budget comes down to it. I mean, uh, we the length of the tr- we 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 kind of circled Southern Africa. Um, for about six months, I think. And after six months, we weren't, you know, we were about 1500 kilometers from Cape Town. Um, you know, you could, you could walk that distance in the same time. So we hadn't actually progressed in terms of like a, you know, across the continent kind of trip. We'd just been going where we fancied based partly on the, you know, on the seasons. But then once we started turning north, the kind of the countdown for the end of the trip was almost on because of visas have an expiry or, you know, a limited time. So once, you know, some countries you can only be in for a month at a time. And, uh, it was when we got to Kenya and we got issued a three month visa for Ethiopia. Um, but that started counting down from the moment we got issued. And so you've got three, basically after that, you've got three months allowed in from when you've, when you've got the visa, um, when we were in Nairobi to having to leave Ethiopia and then we could only get a two-week transit visa for Sudan, and you're only allowed a month in Egypt. So suddenly, although it felt like you know there was a no end to the trip, you know, it, no deadline for the trip. Once we got that visa in in Nairobi, the, the, we're on a countdown to the end of it, just pu- purely because of um, red tape. What is it about Africa? I mean, you, you said you almost feel at home there. I don't know how to, I. It's very hard to explain those kind of feelings. Um, just feel more alive there, I guess. Um, I think a lot of people on the continent have this attitude of living for today, um, often because sort of security and safety s- situations within various countries is uncertain. Um, you know, planning for the future can be sometimes seem quite futile um, when anything unexpected can happen. Um, and so people tend to, uh, a lot of people I've met sort of have this attitude of, well, let's just make the most of living for today. And 
uh, that's uh, kind of like a philosophy that I uh, feel quite strongly about. Um, and I, I feel good when I'm sort of in places in Africa living like that. Um, it's quite hard to do that when I'm back in the UK get uh, back back to work working a regular job and you're getting your regular paycheck and then your thoughts turn to what should I be doing with this paycheck that I get I should be investing for the future planning for my retirement and suddenly you lose sight of the fact that well why don't you just enjoy today we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow so it's I think probably it's that attitude as much as anything yeah. It's a very good thought process, isn't it? I mean, you know, because the fact of the matter is we, none of us know what tomorrow will bring for any of us, you know, for health wise or, or, or country wise or where we live or whatever the situation is, none, none of us know, but there's probably a healthy balance in between, you know, where you could maybe do some planning for, for tomorrow. Um, of course. But live for today. <laughs> and I'm just guessing, you know, I'm just working this out of my head as we're, as we're talking about it. But it's interesting. I, I can see the attraction, but it's very notable that like from a, from a North American perspective, Africa is often referred to as the real deal for motorcycle adventure travel. It's, it's considered the place you, it's not the first place you go. You go after you have some experience, you go to Africa. I think for the very, for the very reasons that you described there, the, the uncertainty, the risk level that, that um, people are worried about, yet that's what you're looking for. That's what you find so intriguing. Yeah, I guess, I guess part of the reason Africa's seen like that, I, I think maybe it's not an entirely true image these days. We, I, I think there's this kind of people who haven't traveled there maybe have this image of Africa as just being full of wild animals um, in, a, you know, sort of you know, scenes reminiscent of out of Africa or something like that. And yes, that might have been 50, 60 years ago. But the reality is now, I mean, I, th I think everywhere in the world is so well connected. And uh, there's a lot of places that are really quite modernized. Um, it's not quite the kind of the, the, the extreme wilderness that we maybe some people are maybe imagining or picturing. Um, but yeah, for sure, it's, it can still be difficult traveling there. Um, certainly more than Europe or, or North America, I'd say, in some respects. Is security always on your mind? Is, is it something you're, you're just, you have to be aware of as you travel through? I mean, we're talking Africa here. It's a big continent. Uh, well, okay. It, on the African continent, no, very little actually. Um, I mean, obviously I stay away from <laughs> kind of war zones and, uh, places where there's just been sure. a coup or something like that. But mm -hmm. on the whole, I've been least concerned about my safety or security on the African continent compared to other continents, I think. Um, uh, in, in, in Europe, my concerns would be about my motorbike being stolen, um, because I think well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, motorcycle theft in 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 the UK, especially, but Europe as well. Yeah. Um, you know, and people, you know, there's organised crime in that respect, and people know the value of the bike. Whereas in, in Africa, there's much less of that. Um, I've never felt threatened to my personal safety. Not really. I don't think in Africa. Um, whereas I have in Central America and Asia, um, 
and again, this, you know, we're talking vast regions and not everywhere is the same. Um, but no, Africa, I, I felt very happy. I mean, I spend most of my time between big cities um, in more rural areas and um, villages have a real sense of community. And there's also a sort of a, almost like a, I'm not quite sure the terminology, but like a sort of village justice. So that if somebody does something wrong, um, the village kind of deal with it internally and I think often the 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 punishments can be quite severe and so generally you don't have the same sort of petty crime in Africa I've experienced as some other places in the world um and as a female traveling I've always people have always I think seen me maybe as perhaps a little bit more vulnerable and wanted to look after me and it's the same kind of um uh, thing that comes about from having these very strong community and family groups is that people look out for each other. Um, so I, yeah, I, I almost never felt threatened or worried. Um, I mean, on my, certainly on the cycle trip, I think I almost never locked my bicycle because I knew it would still be there when I came to collect it, but there's not many places. Well, I, I'd never leave it unlocked in Europe. <laughs> mm, yeah. You, you wouldn't in North America. I wouldn't think anywhere <laughs> <No>. either. <laughs> that would just be risking it or, or you could almost be certain. Well, I'm not certain, but it's certainly a high risk for sure. Yeah. yeah. So you're, you're in, you're into Africa. You're traveling with someone else for the first time. How does that work out? Um, I mean, for the most part on the journey, we, we had a, a great time, but we had underlying issues with our relationship. Um, um, mostly around the fact that I uh, I wanted or needed kind of time to myself at times and wasn't able to have that. Um, and that had a negative impact on our relationship for sure. Um, but it wasn't until we got back to the UK that we, uh, you know, sort of it all came to a head and we ended up splitting up in the end, mm. um, which is, you know, or, you know, any relationship breakup is, is never, never nice. Um, and yeah, it's a shame because it kind of uh, taints and mars the awesome experiences we had. Um, but the, you know, that's just life, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, the entire trip it would, wouldn't it? I mean, because every every memory is mixed with the the both of you in it. it so, just curious here: is, was it the trip that that like its travel style really that that sort of put the wedge in there? Uh, how, how do you mean? Well, I mean, is it this, the, the differences in travel style that, that was the wedge that, that came between you two, or was it just the fact that you, maybe you found yourself not compatible at that point, but it seemed like you had some time before you left to, and, and, and things were going well. I'm just wondering, yeah. is it no, the trip? It, it wasn't, no, it wasn't the trip and it wasn't the travel. It was fundamentally uh, it, about who, who we are as people and our characters. Um, now, before the trip, we, uh, we'd been together about a year, I guess, but it was predominantly a long distance relationship. Um, so for me, that had actually worked really well because when we were together, it was uh, full on and brilliant and we had loads of great times together but then when he had to go back to work and and, and uh, me to my work in different parts of the country that was when I got my time to myself um, and got that sort of type bit of solitude that I needed and time to myself that I needed um, 
And so without realizing it, it, it functioned fine, certainly from my point of view. Um, but then when we started traveling, we were then together 24, seven, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And those periods of um, getting time to myself um, just it became non-existent. And what did you learn about your travel styles as far as solo or with a partner or with someone else on that trip? Um, I, I'm not sure, really. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I've come up a blank on that. Would you travel with someone else again? Not, uh, not set up on a trip with someone again. No. Um, cause I think by doing that, there's almost like a, well, I wouldn't say no. Um, and certainly for shorter, for shorter journeys, um, I think it could be really good, can be really good fun, but for a long sort of unending trip. No, no, I wouldn't. Um, I kind of, yeah, not unless the other person is, is, you know, or we can, we can agree that, you know, we have times apart and do our own things from time to time, uh, which I think is uh, from thinks not unhealthy at all. I think it can be, it's very healthy for a really, you know, any kind of health friendship or relationship to, uh, get on well together, but you've also got to be able to function, you know, on your own and having time to yourself is quite an important thing in life. So you did learn about yourself and how you feel about traveling with another person on that trip. I mean, that sort of solidified it for you. Yeah. Yeah. It solidified that for sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. We were started to talk about um, your trip in Africa and, and where you went on this trip. What are some of the real highlights that, that you would pass on with, from the African trip? Um, for sure. I really loved Angola as a country. Um, also, before we got there, the, the, the sort of the very northwest of uh, Namibia, um, Kalkaland. You know, you mentioned that a minute ago about the northwest Namibia. You said that that was a place that you felt that was was quite wild. Talk, just talk about Angola and northwest Namibia. What, what, what give a description of what they're like? Well, northwest Namibia is. Uh, I mean, there's. It's, Population density is really, really low. I mean, it is in the whole of Namibia, but that northwest especially. And there's there's very there's really only one tarmac road that runs north south through the region. That pretty much everything else is uh, you know dirt tracks and pistes. Um, wow. And so technically, for the riding, it was quite challenging. And we went for you know kind of quite long distances with re- without really coming across anything. Uh, it, was one, it was only one of two regions that was there and also at Lake Takana in Kenya where we had to carry, actually, and in Namibia, uh, in, in Angola, thinking about it, where we had to carry extra fuel because the distances between fuel stops were so big. Mm. And, you know, we, we had little efficient bikes with very big tanks on them, so they, 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 we could cover a lot of ground anyway without refueling. But it's very, I mean, the the landscape is, I'm much better at writing about this stuff than I am about uh, explaining it verbally, I'm for sure. <laughs> it's a very sort of desert-like, very arid and dry. And sort of you have the feeling that nothing could survive out here, which I guess is what makes it all the more amazing when you do come across wildlife and plant life that they've found ways to evolve in these really harsh kind of environments. You know, I, I 
love traveling through on the motorbike, but the reality is you can only stay out there for as long as you can carry enough water, which isn't really an awful lot of time. And you can only travel for as long as you've got enough fuel. Um, so there are real limitations on how long you can stay out there because it, it is pretty inhospitable. Which has to add some excitement to it or some thrill to the whole thing. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I, I know as I said quite a few times, I love kind of the feeling of solitude and uh, sort of no one being or else being around and, and, and you, you really get that feeling there. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but yeah, as, as for Angola, I mean, the, 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 the south of Angola obviously borders um, the Kalkaland and Namibia and it's only, the landscape is very similar. I mean, it's only... Um, divided by the Kanina River. So that was very kind of desolate as well. Um, and, and again, not many people travel there because um, it's still, well, it's, it's at, at, at that time, it was probably about, I think, 27 years since the Civil War. Had, uh, hang on, 15 years or maybe since the Civil War had ended. They had been going on for decades. Um, so there hasn't been a lot of people traveling there. So it's not been kind of inundated with tourists um, and travelers. So there was that kind of feeling of kind of exploring new territory and terrain because there was less information to be found out about it. Um, Mm -hmm. So there's that kind of sense of exploration and adventure now of course people live there and you know people have traveled there over the centuries you know i'm not a pioneer in that aspect but (laughs) it doesn't doesn't stop that you having that feeling because it is remote and you know harsh kind of environment but the rest of angola was um just uh, so varied i mean the, the 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 coastal region is pretty wealthy there's a lot of oil industry there um oil wealth and again people people were just so just so friendly i mean i thought you probably heard this sentiment uh, many times from people that travel um that it's the people we meet I and mean, that people are so friendly hospitable everywhere and for sure angola was like that and then as we kind of traveled inland into angola and then further east towards the zambian border again we kind of traveled through pretty remote territory and it just felt like a real adventure. Um, so yeah, it was, it was really good fun. Really good fun. What other places on your travels would you tell people about that, that may be worthwhile for them to consider going to? Oh, I mean, I, I, I mean, I pretty much love it all. Uh, and it's, <laughs> you know, it, it's a, it's a continent we're talking about. It's so, so varied. I mean, Lesotho was fabulous kind of called the Mountain Kingdom. It's basically high up on a plateau bounded by the Drakensberg in the east in South Africa. And, you know, the trail riding there was fantastic. Um, east Africa is very different. I mean, Rwanda was kind of like this little island in the region in terms of terrain, environmental. Like so, so someone I met there uh, des- described it as uh, the Switzerland of Africa. Because it's uh, it's a very hilly, green, landlocked country and full of rules and regulations, <laughs> just like Switzerland, um, which 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 seemed a very apt kind of analogy. And for example, they were really kind of leading the way in not even just Africa but a lot of the world at the time. Like they banned the use of plastic bags, 
you know, oh. single-use plastic bags. So the country was really clean. Um, once a month, they have a community day where everybody uh, goes out onto into the you know into the the, the onto the streets into the into the you know the hills and whatever and collects litter. And so the place is very tidy. I mean, there's uh, see some countries. I mean. A lot of Western Europe is is pretty good when it comes to lack of litter, but Eastern Europe that I've travelled through recently, and uh, Turkey, and many places in the world, the the litter is a really, especially travelling on motorbikes where you're on the roads a lot of the time, the litter is and rubbish, a kind of pollution is just ever present. So that was a real kind of like felt like a beacon of hope in the, in the region Rwanda did, environmentally speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sudan was fantastic. Um, again, it's a desert-like environment, which I love. And uh, the people we met there were incredibly friendly and hospitable. Um, perhaps it was that that feeling was exaggerated by the fact we'd spent two months in Ethiopia where it had been quite challenging, the travelling. But again, Ethiopia is a fantastic place. Historically and culturally, it's a real, it's just so diverse and um, varied. I mean, I could have happily spent a lot longer exploring the exploring the country, but uh, it got a bit tiresome because uh, I never really got a close connection to people there. And certainly the kids like to throw rocks at, well, fortunately I wasn't cycling because it's a, it's a real thing that they throw rocks at. Uh, cyclists, but they do still throw a few uh, stones at uh, motor- passing motorbikers as well, which why, kind of gets on your nerves after a while. Ah, no one seems to entirely know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's like a national sport. <laughs> 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 and b- boredom, I, I think partly it's boredom. Um, I mean, I did ask some some local guys, and they said, well. Kids in the villages, you know, from a very, very young age, they're kind of turfed out their home to go and look after the, you know, the, the, the sheep on, you know, on the mountainsides and well, they've got nothing to do. And if you're trying to herd sheep and not move around too much, then you throw rocks to get them to move where you want them to move. And with little else, with, you know, no other entertainment, rocks are pretty much the only thing you've got uh, to hand. So they become very effective at um rock throwing. And I guess it sort of stems from that. <laughs> They're going to be really good at it, which makes it even worse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and and then a new target comes along that's got like, you know, shiny wheels and is moving. It's like <laughs> way more interesting than chucking them at uh, sheep that don't move very fast. So I, always I guess. I think that's bizarre. <laughs> I really do. I, I can never get my head around that. <laughs> Hey, what about, um, there's a, there's a a pass that you did that I I think you, I think you looked for this, you went there just because of the challenge, uh, Venzile's pass. Yeah, that was in, uh, in this Northwestern Namibia region. Yeah. What what is that? What is Venzile's pass? Um, I mean, it, it doesn't seem like a pass in the, like you might traditionally think of a pass as being, you know, a route between, you know, two sort of mountains. Um, it's it's more of a, you, you ride from this sort of high plateau and then descend into a valley. Um, but this this pass, it's, a, it's an off-road route, four by four route that was basically dug by hand by sort of a team of laborers for this guy called i forget his first name but his name surname was van zyle who is uh i think he was like commissioner of the region back in whichever day of colonial times and he wanted a route to go from i can't remember the exact 
points on the map, but uh, he, he wanted a route to get to be able to drive his car. And so they, yeah, they dug it out with, you know, shovels and pickaxes, but it's, it's really rough and uh, pretty difficult. And uh, I mean, it's now become a little bit of a, almost like a rite of passage for four by four overlanders mm-hmm. to sort of attempt it and, you know, hopefully succeed. And uh, yeah, I'd kind of read about it and I thought it sounded interesting. The, the advantage with the motorbike is that usually these kind of four by four tracks, you can kind of pick a route through the rocks and the kind of morass that is uh, more doable. So what's incredibly hard for a four by four is slightly less so for a, for a motorbike, but it, it, yeah, it still wasn't, wasn't easy. Um, and this is this is so bad you can only go in one direction. Yeah, or supposedly. I mean, I, I, yes, I, I think technically you could you you might be able to do it in the opposite direction. Not certainly, I couldn't have done it with my Cero. It's not powered high powered enough. But uh, it's it's mainly because it's not wide enough for pass to, for vehicles to pass. So mm-hmm. it's for a practical point of view. Um, if, if if you get if you get, if, if you meet someone coming the other way, uh, you're you're kind of screwed. <laughs> right. So when you were planning to go on this, you'd stopped, I guess, at one point to, to find out about it. And what sort of response did you get? Um. Well, I didn't, I, the the only person that I think, I think you're referring to is we'd stopped in um, uh, I think it's Swakopmund in in Namibia. So yeah, I'd had this idea for doing this, but I wasn't. I hadn't been riding an awful lot at, at this point in my life and I wasn't totally sure of my kind of technical abilities and without knowing how difficult it really was it was hard to gauge whether we were kind of would be biting off more than we could chew and we'd get into trouble so yeah when we we met a, a, a motorbike mechanic in Swakopmund and we got chatting and we were sort of saying where we were hoping to go and uh we kind of said oh do you know this Van Zyl's pass and uh, he was actually talking to my partner kind of ignoring me and he said oh yeah Van Zyl's yeah you know it's 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 pretty tough and he's he, he basically looked at me and said no 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 I, I, I don't think you you, you shouldn't do it um <laughs> <laughs> and then looked to my partner and, and and sort of said to him well you know if, if you were by yourself you could you could probably be you know probably be okay and uh wait, wait is he referring to because you're a woman or because you don't well, have a riding that, experience you know that? that that was certainly what it sounded like because then he, he sort of turned back to me and he said well i don't know you and i was like no you don't <laughs> um <laughs> you don't know me um you might be some champion enduro rider I mean, which case, I guess, I guess maybe, but it it was this kind of uh, this blind assumption that because I was a woman, which is very much how it came across, because mm-hmm. because he that was he also knew nothing about my partner, of course, apart from the fact that he's a male and I'm a female. Um, <laughs> that uh, yeah. Anyway, so after that, I mean, that really got me furious. <laughs> Oh, and, 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 and that was uh, that that was kind of the deciding factor. I mean, we rode away, uh, you know, a, a couple of kilometers and and stopped. And partner was like, "We're, we're riding Van Zyl's, aren't we?" And I was like, "Yeah, too right we are. <laughs> like, I'm gonna <laughs> gonna prove him wrong." <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever go back and tell him? No, no. <laughs> no, it's just all in your mind. <laughs> that's, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's enough. But okay, so what was it like? What, what did it did it hold up to its reputation? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was hard, but. Um, I don't know. I I don't think it was the most 
challenging riding we did necessarily. I mean, it was there was parts which were really steep and rocky. I think some of the stuff we did in Lesotho was harder, but um, there, was, there was certainly a couple of sections that were steep and very rocky um, and rough. And we'd already um, reduced our luggage load. We'd left quite a bit of it in town just basically to try and make life easier for ourselves. And we kind of approached it with, you know, we're not out to prove anything. You know, if we have to walk it down, um, <clears throat> the, walk the bikes down the down the trail, you know, we will. So, um, yeah, my partner went first and I kind of just walked alongside with a sort of a hand on the back rack just as a kind of to help keep it upright if it, you know, was going to go. Um, and he managed all right and then, then did the same. He did the same for me. Um, and we just, yeah, just went really really slowly i mean the advantage with with the bikes we've got these little serros is they're relatively i mean they are lightweight bikes so they're pretty maneuverable and i think it would have been a different story on a big you know 650 700 cc 150 200 kilo yeah or you know sort of 150 200 kilo bike um Mm -hmm. i'm almost certain i wouldn't have I wouldn't have been there <laughs> doing yeah. it in that case. Um, some of the grades are, I think, as, as high as steep as 25%. I have no with, idea. With yeah, Lucian probably. Rocks. I mean, it was, yeah. yeah, it was steep. I mean, it's not so much the steepness, is it? It's the, it was the, the, the sort of the size of the rocks and the sort of the, the lurching. But we just sort of almost inched them down at times. I mean, it was hardly like riding. I mean, the, the, the bikes we were on are so low seat heighted you know you can mostly put your feet down mm-hmm. anyway and so it was just inching them down um very very cautiously you you said there that you read about it in, in advance and, and it made me think of something that you said because you, you don't really recommend researching that much do you because I, I in one of your books we, we didn't mention that you've got you got several books so uh, one of your books i think it's desert snow where you you did the cycling trip through africa and the, the trip preceding this one through africa but I think in the start of it, you said something about it not being a book for a travel planner book sort of thing. And there's plenty of books out there that do a much better job of that. But you said you recommend not reading them, just getting on your bike and going. Yeah, for sure. Um, but 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 also, um, it's good to have a, a vague idea. Of, you know, if you've got things that you maybe want to see or, or experience, then maybe you need to do a little bit of sort of advanced research into where they where you might get those experiences. Um, mm. but you have to, but, but I think my point is that you have to be very open to the fact that plans have to change while you're on the road and that trying to have a fixed itinerary, uh, rarely works. Um, and you won't always get to see the places that you want to see, but you're being open to change and, and also sometimes taking a slightly sort of serendipitous approach. It means that you kind of, you discover things that you had no idea about and can, can turn into also real highlights. Um, so I guess it's a bit of a mix. Yeah, that's how I took it. I took it as, you, you know, you're looking for highlights and then sort of filling in the gaps with, with just happenstance. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and I remember that you had said that when you were traveling to begin with, when you were younger, you, there were always short stints or like, well, there were long stints for what most people would look at. But I mean, you were, you were going for months and I, th- I think maybe even as, as much as six months or something like that. But I think you said it was, it was only when you were 26 that you realized that you could be one of these people that you kept meeting that were on these open-ended trips. How, how did that realization come to you? Like, did that just, did you just decide that, oh, well, I can do it too? Or did you have enough money at that point? Um, well, I mean, the, the, 
I mean, the, the, the first big open-ended trip I did was was the Cycling Through Africa one. And, and that came about because, I mean, I've been working a few years post-university, um, but I got a knee injury and it kind of laid me up for a little while. And it got me thinking, well, once my knee is better and I'm able to walk around and do stuff, um, I guess it made me question what I want out of life. And you know, do I want to be sat in an office doing this engineering that I sort of fell into um, for the rest of my life or or what do I want? And I, I knew I'd always, when I'd met people that, you know, people that have the, have traveled sort of on these open-ended journeys, that was something that I wanted to do. And I was like, right, well, this is the sort of the time to make it happen. Um, no, I didn't necessarily have the money at the time, but I, I set my, from, from making that decision, um, I gave myself, I think, a year and a half to, I I was like, well, what's the the journey I'm going to do? When's the best time of the year to set off? Which was the summer. And I think it was about the winter time, I guess, you know, when I was sort of questioning all all this. And I knew I couldn't save up enough money in six months. So I gave myself a year and a half to save up and sort of a chance to get ready for for the journey. I want to ask about your bike. I know you mentioned that you had a a bigger tank on it. These are Yamaha 225s, small bikes. What did you do to your bike? How did did you modify and get it ready to go on that trip? Um, Not an awful lot. We fitted uh, long range tanks. So it's a 23 liter tank. So on going steady on tarmac, we could probably get 700 maybe even 750 kilometers although you wow. almost never needed to do that but yeah. on the really rough stuff so so in northern namibia uh and angola we could get 500 kilometers on the tank hmm. um That's a lot. Yeah. which is yeah i mean there's very few places in the world that you have to you know there's not a fuel station yeah but you even mentioned that you had to carry fuel as well at one point at yeah, we. I mean, we carried extra fuel on in that northern Namibia, although we didn't need to use it. It was a sort of backup. Um, oh, and again, we carried some extra fuel in Angola. And again, we would have just about been okay with the with a full tank, but it's never really worth taking that risk. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then the other the other place was in um, yeah near Lake Turkana in uh, northern Kenya. So, what else did you do to your bike? Um, put on like hand guards to protect the braking clutch levers mm-hmm. and we changed the jets in the I say we actually it wasn't me <laughs> my partner <laughs> did it actually changed the jets in the carb so they would run better at high altitude um that's pretty much it I mean other than that just a stock bike yeah I mean like we put on different tires but you know the you Apart from that, I think it was just stock. I can't. Hmm. Yeah, not, I mean, it, it came with it. it. It had a rack fitted when I bought it. Um, anyway, but you know, yeah. That, that, yeah, that's basically it. And what about um, your your personal gear? Do you, do you pack heavy? Do you pack light? I, I'm I'm thinking you pack light because you're a cyclist coming to motorcycle. Well, yeah, no, exactly. It depends if you ask. I mean, I think I pack heavy, but that's because I'm coming from a cyclist <laughs> point of view. <laughs> and, uh, and 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 motorbike uh, tools and spare parts are just uh, significantly bigger than a bicycle version. Um, but uh, yeah, a lot of people that ride motorbikes think I'm traveling light. I mean, mm, yeah, right. I, I, bas- I basically have a 50 liter roll bag strapped to the top and then 
usually have a, a like a back a, like a rucksack also which has the tent in it and then it's got loads of space for if you need to carry extra food or fuel or you know anything really um and then these little throwover cheap kind of 10 pound panniers from ebay um that kind of fit wow. in a water bottle and like a lunch box and um anything that's like liquid that might that might leak so like um uh, bike oil and um you know wd-40 and just little bits and bobs like that and how did the bikes perform i know you had the, the starter issue which obviously you didn't were that worried about having the kickstart as well yeah that that that, that was a problem at the start um but again yes because i had the, the kickstart it didn't impede the trip and we got it fixed when we could um I mean, the rear shock on my bike kind of went, we got that refurbished en route. Um, generally, they were, generally they were okay. I mean, you know, on a, on a long trip, you've obviously got to replace, you know, chains and sprockets and um, sure, you're do, wearables. Regu- do regular, yeah, and do, do regular maintenance. Um, uh, we had to replace clutch plates on both the bikes, but again, they wear out. Uh mm-hmm. There was no real breakdowns, to be honest, I don't think. It's just notable that you go to ride, like I said, that from North American perspective, that, you know, is the real deal. It's Africa. It's, you know, you're going to have all this tough riding due. And it sounds like you did. You you searched out a lot of tough riding. And here you take a bike that you basically left stock. You've added the bigger tank and, and, and that's about it. And you're fine. No problem. Yeah, but the, I mean, the bike is... Uh, like I spent a lot of time researching what bike to take and that the, the stock Crucero is kind of like the ideal bike in my view. I, I mean, it all, I mean, so, I mean, the only things that I can, you know, pretty much any bike you need enough ground clearance kind of for the kind of terrain you're taking and then a decent set of tires. And I always figure, you know, if, it, it, there's always a risk that a rock goes through the engine. So you want a, a bash plate to protect the engine and mm-hmm. uh you want to protect the the, the hand levers because they can snap easily and and so you put hand guards on i mean other than that they're pretty robust little vehicles <laughs> mm-hmm. so maybe if i'd have taken a different bike might have had more issues but they're pretty renowned for their reliability so yeah i, I, I don't think I, I i suspect if you ask uh pretty much any cero owner they'll probably say they probably wouldn't be surprised <laughs> that's, a, that's a biased crowd <laughs> well yes yes but they but they are you know the you know they've got a proven history as well proven mm-hmm. track record so what's next on your plans because you mentioned that you haven't managed to get out very much lately yeah i mean the, the last few years i've done a lot more traveling in the uk um and then yeah, this well, last year I did a cycle trip through Europe for six months, and yeah, now I'm on the motorbike again. So, yeah, exactly where I'm going this winter is still to be decided. But over the coming couple of years, I'm hoping to get sort of get to India, Southeast Asia, Australia. Probably not all overland on the same motorbike. It's it just gets very expensive with shipping and 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 whatnot. So I'll probably fly in, and then it's very easy to buy a bike or rent a bike in India. You know, the sort of classic is the Royal Enfield, um, mm-hmm. and 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 sort of uh, do the journey like that. And yeah, I'd, in in Australia, I'd, I I know you can buy uh, these Ceros are available to some extent. So probably buy a secondhand one of those again because um, I know them. You've done some van travel as well. And are, are you living in your van or is that just for travel? 
No, I was living in it for a long time. I, I just sold it earlier this year, actually. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've travelled a lot in the UK in it and lived in it for long periods. I had it for about nine years, I think, in the end. Yeah, I'd often, you know, I've explored a lot of Wales in it. And, uh, you know, I'd, for several years, I'd go up to Scotland for a couple of months each year um, and sort of, you know, living up there um, and kind of exploring the region at the same time. Yeah, I really love it. It kind of, uh, it, 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 it's like my travel fix without technically traveling, if you, you know, count being in your home country and working <laughs> as not travel. Helen, that was great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Jim. Really enjoyed it. Helen Lloyd stopped in the country of Georgia to speak with me today. She is on another adventure. Her website is helenstakeon.com. Helen has four books out about her travels. She has Iceland Sarosaga, A Siberian Winter's Tale, Desert Snow, and Wild Spirit, which is about her and her partner going into Africa that we just talked a bit about today. All available from her website. We've got the link to her website in the show notes, as well as some photographs of her and some of her adventures all in the show notes on our website at adventureriderradio.com. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. about wraps up another episode of adventure rider radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it special thanks to our producer elizabeth martin and of course you thank you very much for being a part of it by listening remember the show is built on a model of advertising and listener support we could use your support drop by our website adventureriderradio.com click on support anything ten dollars or more gets you an adventure rider radio sticker for your pannier your toolbox anything fifty dollars or more gets a mention on our raw show Raw Show is our other show that we do. Comes out once a month. Roundtable talks about motorcycle travel. It's very popular as well. Check it out at the website or anywhere you find podcasts. You could also help out by sharing the show with your friends, posting it on social media, doing all those things to let other people know, as well as giving us a five-star review wherever you're listening to podcasts. So if you're listening on iTunes or wherever, just go there and give us a five-star review. We We would love that. That helps other people find the show. Anyway, thanks so much for being a part of this by listening. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin, and I will talk to you next week. Hi, I'm Chris Birch, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 